Welcome to another episode of It Depends, the podcast by Clear Function. Uh, my name is Ben, and I'm here with Mo. Hey. Daniel. Hi. And Jesse. Hey. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what to expect when you're expecting to code. That's kind of the title we've, we've agreed on, maybe. Jesse helped us come up with that title. Yes, oh. and Daniel. It was I'm, a two-headed monster there. Yeah. So recently, Mo, you went to a college campus to talk about uh, things you learn outside the classroom that are just as important, if not more important. Yeah, right? it was. So So Keith, our intern, is now in college, and uh, we were talking and ended up like, hey, why don't you come talk to our class about, you know, what it's like in the real world? Yes. And so one of the things, you know, I think I titled the presentation what I learned after college or something like that. But some of the high level things that I talked about with the with them was just uh, the, the first point was communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had heard that in college, but the level of communication just is and the type of communication is drastically different. You know, when you're in school, it's like all you really ever learn about you, you're working on your, by yourself or group project. The other thing is most of the assignments are maybe a few hours. The longest I ever worked on was like a semester long project, you know, but in the real world, you've got projects that are, you know, multi, yeah, multi-year, you're going to come back and see your own code. So the communication was not just, you know, talking to people, it's email, it's chat, it's also, you know, the other point I talked about, I didn't learn about source control in school much. And that's another form of communicating is like you're communicating to yourself uh there, there was a session at uh dev space on you're coding for your future self i think yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's just make sure you leave yourself a breadcrumb cr- trail so you know what you did because you're going to be angry at yourself and just you know things like that um yeah it almost all centered around communication and the various aspects of that yeah so we thought this would be a fun topic to kind of just discuss in the open as well just because everyone goes through this you learn all your coding habits you're like man i'm this rock star like c-sharp guy or whatever whatever language you picked in college java whatever and then and then suddenly you're in the real world and like you know you get a pull request or like you put a pull request in and then it just gets like uh, ripped to shreds because you didn't merge and master. You're like, what are you talking about? Like, like <laughs> yeah. if you don't know what that phrase means, it's because yep. you've been working alone, right? In your own silo, you don't you mm-hmm. don't run into a lot of these things that Mo discussed. And uh, so, yeah, I've, that there's that there's a lot of stuff that you don't learn in college. Yeah, um, for me, Jesse, it was uh, merged down was what we would always say at mm-hmm. my at one of my old jobs when I first got exposed to TFS, which I obviously never did anything with in college. TFS is the Microsoft source control thing? Yep, Team Team Foundation server. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's distributed now, but um, I don't think it was originally. I think it's optional. Yeah. yeah. It's like Perforce. It's more like Perforce, which is another sort of enterprise-y thing that I think there's a bunch of toggles to turn on and off um, for the workflow that meets the company's need. But yeah, so the fact that there's so many of them, is is why you don't learn them in in college probably a good reason why like if everyone used git i think you'd probably use git and why you wouldn't run into really complicated merge conflicts at least you'd know the lingo right. but mm-hmm. every corporation sort of has their own mm-hmm. uh their own source control you know whether they use git or or um you know mercurial or whatever mm-hmm. um so it's pretty hard to know all of it up front it's true i will say i've worked primarily with github for my last three jobs all they've all been mostly rails too so yeah yeah rails projects tend to be on github a lot even Mm -hmm. in the corporate world um it's just because i guess that's just where that community sort of uh, yeah most of the rails gems are on github so once you get used to doing that 
you'll you'll often find yourself contributing back to those gyms if they don't do something you need. And yeah, a lot of uh, bigger organizations uh, host their own GitHub or their own GitLab. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, we're getting too much into source control, but uh-huh. but the merging part of source control is really what what you were sort of after, like that, like knowing how to commit. They probably learn in college, but it's like merging, like making good commit messages for yeah. yourself. You know, for me, I didn't even learn. I didn't use source control until my senior project, which was, as it turns out, the semester-long project with a team. Yeah. And it takes multiple people. Source control will absolutely help you for yourself. Yeah. For checkpoints. That's something people don't get. But, you know, it was like I I ran into situations where I coded, and then it's like it used to work. Now it doesn't, mm. and I don't know what I changed to break it. But, you know, we absolutely, as a team, decided, yeah, we need this because there's now four of us on the project. And it was uh, two weeks ago that something was working versus three hours ago. Yeah. Yeah. And many, many more commits. The pitch for source control is often, oh, this is good for helping share with a team or distribute your code. But, yeah, the personal benefits are huge. I think even the pragmatic programmer suggests that. Mm -hmm. Working alone, you work for two hours you make some meaningful progress and you know you're not done, but you want to put a line in the sand. You know, we're never going to go past here. At least this thing's working. Right. So if you, especially when you're young or new, you maybe have one huge file full of giant methods or whatever, and you can't as easily break things down into small pieces and rearrange them and put them in different files mm-hmm. and keep the thread going. So it's just one big thing that is almost like a, a house of cards and it'll really easily blow up when your 50 or 100 line method gets one thing going wrong and you're not, advanced enough to understand it's sort of you know one of the things from the you know the testing world is have a test before you refactor Mm -hmm. but i mean one of the first safety nets is source control yeah (laughs) you know it's like yeah make sure you have this checked in before you start changing everything so you can get back to the state you were in before yeah i had a feature for our major product yesterday uh we, we rethought the profit model a few times, and I had to go change it back to something that's almost like the way it looked a month ago, and I just dug it out on GitHub and mm-hmm. found the last known commit before we changed it the second time and right. just copied and pasted that in. Made me happy. Yeah, it was an easy fix. Yeah, it would have been like three hours for me to rebuild it from memory and half an hour for me to copy and paste it yeah. and then tweak it from memory. One of the things that I showed was um, we, we all had fun with this a few weeks ago. It was Gorse. G O U R O C E. It's a Git visualization tool mm. where you can visualize all of your commits. And I just sort of wanted to show, like, this is the extent to what we actually live in source control. It's sort of, you know, we spend more time in source control than we do maybe in chat or in email or any. I mean, the only other thing we spend more time in is probably our editor. Yeah, and right. uh, it was just, it, it helps everyone to sort of see, like, okay. You see just how quickly and how many files we touch in a single day. Yeah, and so that's not a uh, that's not like a visual Git client. That's a visualization of all the commits. It sort of just shows people's heads bobbing around the different files mm-hmm. and like oh, cool. as they get modified and deleted and things like that. Um, and so it's really cool to kind of see the history in a visual sort of. Uh, I don't know what kind of visualization that is, but it's sort of. I don't know. It's almost like a. It's, it was like, it's a, like a spider web, sort of. All of the files, you know, and you can see the hot spots in the code. And yeah, you can, if you haven't seen it, shows it, where the churn is. It's you really cool. Check, check it out. that out. Yeah. yeah, the funny story there is a recent longer project that we came on uh, after several years of, of work, and we reworked quite a bit. 
included uh, some cleanup towards the end right before launch and yeah. Jesse got the privilege of deleting <laughs> yeah. like 200,000 deletions or something like that. Yeah, it was just old code that was sitting around that yeah. we had converted over to um, new stuff and for some reason it got left in source control just as a reference for a long time and then yeah. it was time it was finally time for it to go away and so the vis- visualization of it was ridiculous. Yeah, That's in cool. course it looked it was, amazing. Yeah, it was just a giant explosion of just red deletions and uh, so it was a lot of fun and I'm sure they had a good kick out of seeing that happen at the campus. That, yeah, there was definitely, I mean, the, the good thing was, at least for them, they had actually been introduced to source control. Like right. I said, I had not. So I do think that it's something that, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, before, we were, while we were prepping for this is someone who wants to get into programming. You know, I always thought about, you know, when I was getting into programming, th- most people, you'd go to a bookstore and you get a book, right? you know, you go to the computer section and all of these books are, hey, how to learn programming. And back then, anyway, there wasn't any discussion of source control. So it's sort of like learning a language is only the first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? definitely. Because, yeah, now that you can learn languages online, in really just like a couple of weeks, you can get some really, really good fundamentals online through a lot of these free or paid um, sort of like, you know, workshops online. Um but then they don't teach you some of these intangibles that people do interview for. Like this, it's the sort of thing that like interviews have changed over time as well to try to try to make sure you're not necessarily getting the guy who just got out of a workshop unless you want that guy. Like, you know, if your goal is to get someone who's been coding for a while or like, you know, there's just certain things that as an interviewer you look for as well, like for the position. And so a lot of these uh, workshops can kind of give you that experience in the code, but not the experience with the team and, uh, so that's very important stuff to look for. As a quick fun side note, which languages did you guys start with? And and by start with, I just mean when you were learning to code, not necessarily shipped to production, to production, but that First, would be interesting like, too. First, playing around yeah. when I'm a kid or when I went to school? No, when you went to school. Uh, okay. Uh, for me, it was .NET. Okay. Daniel? I did... I can't say I remember any meaningful code in school. The first time I really felt like I was <laughs> getting some flow and producing something that worked the way I liked it was probably... A couple of years after grad school, I wrote some Python. Cool. I think I did a little bit of Java and C++ in college, but I never really felt the flow going there. I wrote some PHP that worked. I guess PHP is the first meaningful thing I shipped. Cool. Mo? Let's see. So I had no programming experience before college. Um, I had written some HTML, but I used a an editor to actually build it for me, so... In school, it was C, C++, and then we got into, we actually did some Perl, and I did some Lisp, and uh, Java, and C Sharp was brand new when I was about to graduate, did a little bit of that. Um, it was, did, my, my, my uh, less, or coursework tried to sort of give us a broad breadth of experience over languages. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. So... How about the first useful program you wrote? I feel like that was going that direction. What was your language there? Like that actually got some use that you were glad that you wrote so, it. So not like, college like, then. Yeah, like I had a 300-level class where we did data structures in Wait, Java. are you saying that you don't write useful useful <laughs> programs in college? I didn't. <laughs> I don't think well, I Well, I'll take it back. I did participate with some ASP and some Visual Basic for something that we did for a government client. But that was such a huge project, and I had such a small part on it. It yeah. was meaningful, but... 
it didn't really give me the same feeling of accomplishment as building, say, a web page scraper in Python that I actually use for my daily work in a professional job. There's something to be said for the means being the end, though, right? Even making something that's not, quote-unquote, useful in production, yeah. the means of me building it is a good end in and of itself for me learning right. how to program. Yeah. So, so there's something there, too. I would say probably to answer your question, my first meaningfully used production app was in an internship where I did PHP. So I'd probably say classic ASP. Um, at my first job out of school, there was some ma- maintaining some of the legacy stuff. And so it's just, you know, I'm changing some green screen things actually. And I didn't really feel like I was doing much more than just seriously changing some text around things like that. But it wasn't until I got to do some web programming that actually, you know, I was able to work on most of it from beginning to end, and mm-hmm. it actually was useful and being used. You mentioned web programming and scripting. That's something I I did cover scripting languages a bit in grad school, but I never really connected the dots. It mm. wasn't until, again, the, with the Python a few years after grad school that I suddenly felt empowered to do general purpose programming to automate most anything I wanted to. Like Once I realized I could go come up with a list of URLs, download them, like scrape them, parse them, and then feed that into somewhere else. Suddenly I've got this whole data pipeline I've conceived of and implemented myself, whereas my college-level programs are more... Computer science-y. Is that yeah, like yeah, here's okay. a specific thing right. that you're doing, right. but right. it's not suddenly you have mastery over the entire life of text from here to there and input formats, output formats, anything you want. Yeah, when I was in college, a side project I did just at home to just sort of learn the language more was like a, uh, I wrote it in .NET, but it was an anti-cheat for like Call of Duty, like just like a for a tournament or a league or whatever. So that was the first thing I did. It basically just took screenshots and like zipped them in an encrypted format so you could upload them to the, so you could just like throw them in like an upload somewhere like to be reviewed by the tournament admins or whatever. So it was pretty cool the first time it like caught like a cheater. You're like, oh, look, I can see people through the walls. Like, (laughs) all right. Like just because it was so little that like no one, no cheater was like, no cheating like thing was looking for it or whatever. And I'm sure it was really easy to, uh, looking back, I'm sure it was like really easy to get around. But uh, if for the laziest people, it caught them. And so that was the first meaningful thing probably I wrote, Mm. you know. That's cool. I imagine most of the cheaters are buying their cheats off the shelf. So the idea of having to write a custom anti-cheat for something that nobody's ever heard of. There's cheats these days using auto hotkey. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Like they, because auto hotkey can look for pixels. Oh. So this is a complete tangent of the subject. (laughs) But I saw recently where like auto hotkey, you can like, like you can look for certain pixels. So they look for like certain colors, like in Overwatch, for instance, like your enemies have a a very thin outline of red when Mm -hmm. they're on your screen. And so they'll oh, yeah. use it to slightly adjust the mouse towards like the X oh, wow. Y position of like yeah. you know the most topmost of the position or something like, like that. And so so it's thing. not even like actually it's auto hotkey looking at the pixel. Anyway, I think wow. it got caught recently, so don't go do that. That's, um, that's, a, that's a Windows <laughs> you will be banned. scripting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you will be banned. What you call it? Uh, you can do almost anything with it. I have never enjoyed writing auto hockey scripts. <laughs> no. Anyone says that auto hockey is yep. the answer, I'm like next. Like I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not sure if it's either. better than Apple Script or not. So again, on the communication side, you know, it's just understanding and expecting. You know, when you're on a a big job, you know, with people, <laughs> there's a lot of. It's just you got to talk to people a lot more. You know, I mean, something that when I was doing more waterfall type programming, there weren't as many meetings, you know, you sort of got to get the requirements and then run off into your programming cave and come back out 
six to eight months later. But, you know, when you're doing more agile methodologies, you've got to stand up. You've got to talk to people. You've got, you know, there's just a lot more interactions than I, like I said, I, I, I knew that people said, yes, there's going to be more Mm -hmm. communication, but you know, you think about remote, how remote has changed, how we've talked Mm -hmm. about a podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking about remote work. Um, there's just, yeah, communication to non-technical people specifically yeah, is a skill that yeah. I think yes. uh, that a lot of people don't learn until they've had a lot of on-the-job experience. Right. That's been um, a core element of every programming job I've had is even when I was fresh out of college, I knew vastly more about programming and technical possibilities right. than the the business stakeholders or the business analysts who were responsible for mm-hmm. managing or either coming up with ideas or managing the realization of the ideas. So it's weird sitting across the table from someone twice your age who says, I'd like a report that does this. And you're thinking, well, I'm not sure our system can really do that. So you've got to figure out the proper way to right. think of yeah. alternatives, yep. try to look read between the lines to see what they really want, which maybe isn't what they asked for, mm-hmm. and help them get what they need rather than just what they asked for. That's and that, I'm still a, working on that after a, difficult a long yeah. time. And it varies between, I mean, it's almost per individual to yeah. some degree, where it's just someone is technical in terms of they're not afraid of their computer. You know, it's like right. I'm not trying yeah. to explain this to my mom, for example. I'm trying to explain this to someone who's worked in this field for decades, perhaps. They're an expert in this. And they've been using computers with it maybe longer than me. But they don't care about the implementation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it can go the other way too. Like the uh, if you're new to the job, and uh, a lot a lot of mistake I see a lot of younger people doing is giving like I I don't want to say like they really they rush it. They they say I can do this in a few hours, <laughs> and they don't care about the consequences of the code and that can really lead you to being sort of like a lot of burnout for one thing because you'll be the guy they keep coming to to fix little things and while you'll feel like a rock star for fixing these things for the business analysts like if you decide to stay there you will not be pleased later like you will be like oh man like because that's what they could call like a cowboy coder right like you're off doing your own thing you don't really care about anyone else you've sort of like have to integrate with Mm -hmm. and uh, i don't know so that's one thing that it sort of goes back to communication of like reading between the lines of what they want. Like they don't, they don't want to tank their own product with technical debt. Like that's the thing that you just have to learn. Like they don't, like they may say that, yeah, we really want that out next week. And if you're like, how about next week plus two days? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like you just setting those expectations and reading between the lines of like, are we actually going to miss some huge goal or are they just in a rush because they're in a rush? Because uh, those are two separate things. That's a great point. We were discussing that right before we opened here is uh, the difference between having your implementation technically satisfy most of the requirements and having it done and useful to the organization long term is just huge like maybe you get the words on the screen but having them properly laid out so that the next developer even yourself two weeks from now can a read it quickly and understand it and b extend it properly you gotta leave yourself not just breadcrumbs but hooks later as well to like you have to you have to read between the lines and anticipate how this feature may change. Mm-hmm. Right. Like just because they say they want this button here and they want it to do X, you have to, you have to think about that feature and like, is there a, you know, is there any possibility that in, in your case earlier that the, uh, the formula will change? Right. It's like, yes, there is. And so you leave yourself hooks to make sure that you can come mm-hmm. back and, and do that without like, you know, rewriting the entire application and uh, breaking yeah. everything. And now 
counterpoint there is you don't want to over-engineer it, yeah. especially when you're new. That's <laughs> tempting yeah. to try to make a design that anticipates seven different possibilities so that you can just flip the switch. To... I call that the master's degree versus the, uh, the uh-huh. workshop. Like, those are the two spectrums yeah. there. Like... Sure. So, uh, Sandy Metz is one of my biggest programming role models in this respect, and I've mentioned her book, Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby, several times. Mm-hmm. Her point is always, your code should be easy to change. Right. It will have to change. So make sure whatever you do can be unwound or reshaped. Don't anticipate everything and try to build in all the options. Just make sure that looking at what you have now, you can have a feel for what pieces are likely to change and how hard it's going to be when the change inevitably shows up. Something just, I don't even know how to put this into words and maybe that's, but it seems like a lot of the learning that I had was, very objective it mm-hmm. works or it doesn't yes but a lot of professional yeah. is subjective uh-huh. you know what i mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. yeah you get your a if you have your code that compiles or right if you're in your code if it school. outputs yeah yeah what it what it's supposed to output but yeah like you said in the business world it's just a little we, different we, we had a, a client meeting recently where and this is more on the ux side of things but we were 95 plus percent done with the project it almost had every feature they wanted and yet it didn't feel right to them. Mm. And so they were very concerned, and we had a little bit of help on the UX side of things. We spent less than four hours on it and showed it to them again. Like th- Their feeling was so much better. It's all subjective, right? Right. And yet... That the importance on the subjective side of things, you know, with yeah. code. That's I mean, that's sort of why the concept of code smells. Mm-hmm. That no no one has really come up with maybe a better word for that that I know of. It's just eh, it doesn't quite smell right. So the idea of code smell is, you know, you look at some code. There's something wrong. I can't say exactly what it is. Some people have tried to sort of enumerate some lists of code smells, mm-hmm. but I mean, technically, it might work. But it's still not right. That also right. kind of goes back to knowing your audience, which is yeah. um, when yeah. you're when you're demoing something. Like a lot of very technical people um, will try to demo to a very non-technical person, and if you're the kind of guy who hasn't done any work on the UI and it looks awful, you might need to just know that you probably shouldn't demo that to whoever it is unless <laughs> right. if you think that they're a very visual person. Yeah. Um, because mm-hmm. if you don't know that, then you just kind of have to take that risk right. if, it, if, it, if it's worth it, right, if you need the feedback right then. But mm-hmm. if you know that the person's very sort of like, man, this button doesn't have, the cor- the corners aren't rounded or shaded the way that it needs mm-hmm. to be, like yeah. you shouldn't show them their work, your work in progress without at least spending a little bit more time cleaning, cleaning yeah. it up to what you think would be acceptable because you will not get the results for the meeting that you intended to have. Like right. if you're trying to be like, hey, does this work like you want? And they're a visual person. They're going to talk about all the button changes and all the like screen changes. Mm-hmm. And they're, you're not going to get your actual answer because they're going to feel like you're way behind. Like they're yeah. going to, the conversation is just going to shift not in your direction. Yeah, it's definitely about knowing your audience. And I've seen lots of people talking about something like uh, balsamic mockups. Mm-hmm. Like just mm-hmm. quick sidebar have any of you ever yeah. regretted showing somebody an early screenshot and then yes. to your horror you find out they think that means it's almost done the, when the, you haven't even started the back end? First example of that for me was uh WinForms programming a few years ago and you could build the design for it in the designer and mm-hmm. it was functioning code you could have button clicks do things but none of it hooked up to the back end or to right. the database and the user the users 
oh yeah wow you're you're almost done this is great yeah no what we did to combat that um it was a wpf application um we created a theme, or I say yeah, we created, yeah. we found a theme that looked like Basomic. Yes. So that everything was all wavy and looked like it was hand-drawn. And yes. that, like, we had to do that after the first meeting went so horribly. Because mm-hmm. people were like, oh, that looks really good. We're, right. like, almost done. There was no business logic. It was yeah. really supposed to just go over the flow mm-hmm. and, like, the idea yep. of, like, what this application should be. Because we were still in, like, the, the spike phase. And so when we came back with, like, you know, Basomic mock-up runtime, basically, like, they didn't they didn't ask those questions. And, and the feedback Absolutely. was much better about, like, you know, because um, you just like a dot, dot, dot here and like being able to just be like, mm-hmm. this is going to be more columns, like instead of it looking real and like, can you sort that? Like yeah. showing a little arrow that looks like it's going to sort, even though it doesn't like mm-hmm. it just when it looks like it's on a napkin or whatever, it's just yeah. a completely different uh, conversation. And that's not the kind of experience you can have in college or probably in a code school. Because yeah. most of the people who are evaluating your work are going to be people who know more about the technology right. than you do. So you're not going to. Have someone you think, know, oh, this is totally almost done when it's really just You don't really build a whole a lot of front ends in college either. I mean, when you're yeah. doing computer science classes, I don't remember very much UX or UI type stuff in college. I had a required Visual Basic class, and that's all drag yeah. and drop front ends. I, and I remember still thinking, like, I wrote some of the console apps in C and things like that. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, maybe I was... No, I didn't take a graphics class until my junior year. Mm-hmm. So I have I'm halfway through my college coursework. And I haven't, you know, from my perspective, learned how to build an application that anyone would use right. that I knew in my yeah. family, you know. And so, I'm like, man, am I going to be able to get a job? Because yeah. But again, this was thinking, you know, that the graphical stuff is all that matters. Not knowing a webs, web programming, or anything like that, you know. Yeah. But there's just so many yeah. facets to programming still. You know, just learning one thing, there's still so much more out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had that same experience. That's actually what drove me to learn Python years after grad school. Is I went to a, a weekend hackathon, and I was the only nominal programmer on the team. And we had a, an attainable business idea, but I realized that I didn't think I could pull off the programming end of delivering a working web app that did all the things from end to end mm-hmm. on a schedule. And I think that's what inspired me to learn Python and Rails, and I'm glad I did because it led me right. to be here having a good time. But it's pretty wild to imagine all those years of C++ and Java and VB and whatnot. And I can't just, I don't even know where to start to build this app that does these things. You know, and I don't regret at all knowing some of those things. Because I think if all I knew were, for example, just Rails, yeah, then I think I would fall prey to the, the black box issue where everything else that isn't inside of... Ruby is yeah. a black box. Well, I don't know how to dig into that. So you know what I mean? Mm. Knowing how everything else works allows me to better diagnose mm-hmm. my Ruby programs. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, well, I'm calling out to something that's compiled. Oh, that's not a problem. I can still dig into that. Yeah. And and that kind of goes back to, I think, another point on your uh, slides, if I remember right, was continual learning and continual yeah. improvement. Yeah. Like, you know... I'm I'm sure every field has it to a degree, but I would say that it's pretty extreme in engineering and especially programming um, is like the amount of expectation of keeping up to date with the trends because you're not, you know, even if you're not the designer guy, like they're going to ask for some widget somewhere that they've seen on another website and it's going to be written in some language that you don't understand. Even if you have to rewrite it in the language you do know, like there's just so much continual learning to keep up to date on like patterns and practices. Even if you're not interested in knowing about like the latest trends, like it's your job to know about them, like to some extent, like Mm -hmm. you have to, you have to be able to intelligently talk about 
those sort of things or review the sort of code that comes out of those projects and, and know the, you know, the pros and cons so that, you know, you can intelligently make those decisions to help the business make those decisions. Because if you don't know it, then the company doesn't know it. And that's, and that's dangerous for the company. Like the, they need to know someone who can, you know, have a future, a futuristic, you know, person looking, looking out for the future of the company. Yeah, before anybody listening gets really like a lot of anxiety <laughs> over what Jesse just said, check out episode 10 uh, in the podcast feed talking about when we should learn uh, new technology and really dig in yeah. uh, and, and, you know, try to ship something maybe with that. I think yeah. Jesse's just talking more about uh, having an eye out for what's coming down the pipe. Yeah, you, and, can't, you can't just work in a silo. You can't be like, well, I know C++ right. and yeah. that's all I'm ever going to know is like, yeah. you know, this one little thing and just try to stay in your little corner and right. Yeah, right. Absolutely. it's just not you know it's not healthy for the business so if you want to be in that company for a long time like you know you just have to have some sort of outlook to make sure that you're helping them out i will say that the older i get the more comfortable i am admitting the things i don't know mm. Absolutely. i don't mean that i've excused myself from having to learn new things just that developing experiences being successful at work makes it easier to just admit when you don't know something and that is a really useful skill that can be hard for new graduates or just entry-level people someone asked you something you're already insecure you're afraid to admit when you don't know and so maybe you'll pretend or yeah try to play along and it just goes wrong so the more social capital and demonstrated skill you've got then the easier it is to say okay well i've heard of that another episode that sort of touches on this right the imposter syndrome oh yeah yeah Um, similar thing because we talked about I believe similar things where, you know, you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing. So sometimes you go a little too far because, yeah. you know, knowing that you don't know and t- being able to communicate to that someone is an important thing. I've worked with people before who had been in the same technology for literally decades. And so new technology was terrifying to them. Mm-hmm. But what I found in my experience is once you have sort of jumped to another language once and been successful at it, you're not quite as nervous about doing that again. Yeah. Like I've done this before. I've had success at it. And yep. so there, there's, there's a lot of value in just maybe no more than one programming language. You know? Well, and I think on the continuous learning vein, like one thing that's really helpful when I don't know something is figuring out, should I have known that and how? And so not so much asking people to give me fish, but teach me how to fish. Yeah. Uh, even just peers, right? Like when we're learning things from each other, I'm not really interested in you solving the problem for me, but instead helping me figure out how to solve the problem next time. Yeah. So just that attitude of continuous learning, like Jesse was talking about, I think is really helpful and something that you might not pick up on in early on or in college. Yep. And that reminds me of another chapter in the Pragmatic Programmer. Um, there's one, I think it says you must learn a scripting language because they're just so useful for automating and glue. But that was written 10, 15 years ago when most people were learning compiled, statically typed, object-oriented languages in college or on the first right. job. If you think now about students who might be graduating mostly just knowing Python or Node, what would you recommend to them to learn as a supplementary second or third language to round out their abilities you can never go wrong with learning javascript right now yeah um, but they've but probably already that. heard of it before this podcast and touched <laughs> it before yeah. yeah i don't know i mean so maybe the- just a paradigm like personally i didn't have much professional experience in statically typed languages until a few years ago yeah. so i taught myself some go and i shipped something that was good and mm-hmm. here at clear function i did about a year of net and that helped too i think I, I don't know that I'd pick a specific language. I'd say there's sort of three tiers that I think are important. Maybe not, don't, don't expect to be an expert, but 
statically typed languages, mm-hmm. uh, a dynamic and or scripting language, and then a functional language. Yeah. Um, whether whether that's you know F sharp or Haskell or uh, Lisp or yeah any of the other functional ones out there, just learning how to think in those terms just a little bit mm-hmm. yeah. will help you as you know. Uh, many languages that aren't truly functional have functional concepts yeah. and it can really sort of change the way you code and think. Yeah, if you've ever written a for loop that didn't do what you thought it was going to do, learn some functional programming. Yeah, right. So what other uh, bullet points did you have from your presentation that we we haven't touched on yet? One of them, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, was just learning to balance. Um, Just, it, it hits on a little bit of the imposter syndrome, a little bit, a little bit of, you know, when you're learning, don't get overwhelmed. Um, yeah, everyone I, was wh- where you were or where you are at the time. Like someone at some point was right. new to the company and right. new to programming. And so, you know, um, even if they, maybe the guy, maybe the guy you're talking to, your lead dev is like not very good at, uh, you know, uh, showing that he was ever someone who didn't know something. But mm-hmm. uh, but he at some point didn't know everything. So, so. Something we did talk about, and this is follows along with, you know, sort of learning multiple things and not maybe diving in too deep. It can be overwhelming right now, for example, with the multitude of JavaScript frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So what might be more important is to learn some of the basic MVC concepts. So, you know, model view controller so that you can say, okay, I can now see over here in this framework the same idea and apply it over here to this other one. Right. So, for example, I mean, when uh, SP.NET MVC came out, Rails had already been out for a little while. Mm-hmm. Knowing a little bit of Rails made it easier to pick up the concepts that were in ASP.NET MVC. Yeah. S- similar with, um, you know, Ember has, uh, Ember JavaScript framework has concepts of model and a view and a controller. Yep. A, you can start to generalize some of that knowledge and apply it so that yeah. learning the patterns to implement not necessarily the the framework and and same goes for Java, javascript i think is especially in a bad place for someone to just google and try to learn because oh. they're going to learn how hmm. to do react or angular or something like that but what they really need to be learning apart from just like you know the patterns of like mvc is just the core language because yeah. the the fundamental understanding of like okay right. like how do you write a class? Like I want to write an animal class and then mm-hmm. I want to have a dog that barks and a cat that meows. Like you still need to do that. Like <laughs> yeah. that's how everyone's done it in like some object oriented programming somewhere. And like, you still need to do that in JavaScript. Like and and they don't really teach either, that. Yeah. Like don't, don't bring jQuery into the picture until you need it. Like it's a great, I, I do think that if you're going to say that you do JavaScript, you probably need to have at least touched jQuery by the end of before you do too much. Like just because the way that they do things mostly for a patterns approach, like, because they have set a precedent for how, how APIs sort of look a lot of times Mm -hmm. and uh, that are still used today. So, but I, yeah, I mean, you need to be able to write a timer class and it needs to be able to like tick and stuff. You don't, if you, if you just follow every jQuery tutorial, react tutorial, you're, you're only going to know those frameworks Mm -hmm. and that's not going to go very far. Um, You know, you're going to have to go back to the basics at some point. To sum that up, would you, would you say it this way? Learn concepts, not syntax. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, that's that's definitely part of it. But even like, if your goal is to be a JavaScript developer, you you still want you want to learn, you want to learn the base, the Maybe base. Like, no, you want to learn the language, first. not the frameworks. Not yeah, a, yeah. That's great. Once you are a JavaScript developer and understand JavaScript better, 
then then you thing. can then learn Angular or React or whatever. Right. It's sort of you haven't tied yourself to oh this is a, a React class or something. Yeah, you'll this never understand what React's is. doing, like rendering a shadow DOM if you've never done basic DOM manipulation. Like you're not going to understand what does that even mean. Like what yeah. like you're going to read it and you're going to gloss over it and you're going to make a React app and it's going to work and then the second like you need to do some like basic DOM DOM manipulation, you're not going to know what you know you're doing. You gotta you gotta know the basics of whatever language you're looking at. I would say that. That, that advice is great given a certain minimum level of competency. Yeah. If you can already write a program that does some things that you wanted to do, then yeah, you probably should double down on the theory and learn object-oriented programming or whatever. But personal example, uh, I had a really hard time in algorithms class in grad school. Years later, when I'm learning Python and doing really simple work, I think to myself, man, if I could have written those algorithms out in Python, they would have actually made sense to me. And I'm talking about my past self, who's a 23-year-old who was in year six of consecutive computer science training. Yep. Having a few months of hands-on building stuff and a scripting language experience would have enabled me to better get to that stuff. And sure, I started out learning classical. I was learning the foundational principles of object-oriented programming in my first semester of college. Mm -hmm. And I was learning how to actually program after college. I think... There's a there's a balance there. Yeah. Uh, one, one, my first uh, CS class, I say C and C++. At the time, I didn't know the difference. Right. So one of the things that we actually were, we, we were writing C++, but not writing objects yet. Good. So we were using some of the object syntax without writing. You know, so we were learning how to write procedural stuff mm -hmm. with some of the benefits of C++ instead. Right. And so it was sort of, I think that that's sort of the balance you're talking about there mm -hmm. is when we came back later, they said, okay, what you were actually doing there was using an object, What you were, you know what I mean? So the, yeah. you, you want to, and that's where it's like learning the concepts. If you get too hung up in, you know, like uh, pointers and memory manipulation and things like that, when you're trying to learn about the structure or an algorithm or something like that, you don't want to be tied down by that necessarily yeah it's it's no maybe it's maybe another way to put it is know what you're trying to learn mm -hmm. yeah you can get yeah, hung up on some yeah, of the leverage other the frameworks like yeah if you have a if there's a framework somewhere that's going to provide like you know some like algorithm to like take an x and y coordinate and turn yeah. it into something like yeah like unless that's your core business then yeah you should probably be bringing in a library but when you're first starting and you're just like hey i want to make this button alert like yeah. you don't need jquery like that's sort of my point is you probably should go down to the to the basics to be like okay well how do i make this button do this alert like if your goal is to learn javascript then learn javascript not jquery yeah to me i'd say the what i still think the best starting point for a beginning program would be python it's super easy to read it's got everything in it if I were teaching people things, I'd probably have day one be copy and paste this, type in these five commands, and now you're running a Flask app that says hello world. And then day two is writing a new function that is a Flask yeah. app that will calculate the sum of two numbers. Like building inside of an actual functioning real world app, you can still use that to demonstrate individual concepts and bite-sized methods. Yeah. When you're writing a Java class, Swift is that, pretty good these days. Like the Swift playgrounds are a really good place to learn. Playground is pretty good. I, I actually... Uh, do value my early C C plus plus like yeah. 
Yeah, I, I do I'm, too. I, I, I don't want to make it sound all negative as we talk about no, what, we, yeah, what yeah. we didn't learn in college, but I, I it was invaluable. I, oh, too. yeah. I don't mean to say that object-oriented... All the classical theory is not important, but yeah. people need to be able to put it into practice. I was in third grade. I had piano lessons. There's a theory book, and there's a fun yeah. music, a fun songs book. I I did the theory because I was forced to. Then the ones yeah. where you play songs that sound fun and maybe you've actually yeah. heard before, that's dramatically more engaging than just an hour of scales. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully this conversation was helpful for you if you're starting out in uh, coding or programming, uh, and maybe even helpful for you as you have friends who are, are wanting to do the same. Um, if you have any questions for following up on anything you heard, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. You can either hashtag it depends or you can tweet at us directly at Clear Function. All right. All right we'll see you guys next time. See you next time. Thanks. You've been listening to It Depends, a podcast by Clear Function. Clear Function is a group of happy engineers based in Memphis, Tennessee. We partner with visionaries to bring their ideas to life. For more information, check out our website at clearfunction.com.